This is the Nietzsche Podcast. Today we're going to continue with Beyond Good and Evil, the epigrams and interludes. This is part four of the text. And I mentioned at the very end of the last episode, this is Nietzsche writing in the style of the French aphorists, people such as La Rochefoucauld. Stylistically, this is what he's emulating, but also in terms of substance, what La Rochefoucauld did was to make psychological observations first and foremost. And that's a large part of what Nietzsche is doing here, although he does cover more territory than that. Now, this section is, you know, it's, an, it's a series of interludes, right? Uh, does that mean that these are just completely disconnected from the rest of the text? Well, no, I think it is important as an interlude that it is the bridge between the beginning of the text, the first three sections, which establishes the prejudices of the old philosophers, dogmatic universalist philosophy, the perspectival free-spirited approach to philosophy, and then applying this to religion, which is essentially morality and metaphysics, the foundations of our thought, right? <laughs> and particularly going after Christianity, but really religious thought in general and asceticism, the figure of the saint, the image of the good life in the within the religious mindset, you might say, and what that has produced in Europe seen from a psychological perspective, because as Nietzsche concludes section two, or sorry, part two of the work, the free spirit, psychology is now the route to asking the deepest questions. So now in part four, what we have are some of the most famous sayings of Nietzsche are contained here. And it's an exercise in applying everything that Nietzsche has laid out up to this point. And I think these, unlike, say, the Maxims and Arrows and Twilight of Idols, where Nietzsche just starts the text right off, and it I describe that, at least personally, for my own taste, it's a little bit uh, jarring as a beginning section. Part four of Beyond Good and Evil, I think, is situated perfectly in that having established this mode of thought or his way of approaching philosophy and human life, Nietzsche can now approach philosophy in that playful way of the Gea Scienza, in that sort of dancing, leaping from mountaintop to mountaintop way um, that is so definitive of him, you know, stylistically. But again, he is influenced very much by the French aphorists. And so I think this section is placed exactly where it needs to be in the text. And I think it perfectly sets up the next section. More importantly, though, it's like constellations of ideas. It's constellations of assertions and thought experiments that are all separate but related. And amongst these are some of, as we've said, the most important ideas of Nietzsche presented simply in this decontextualized aphoristic form um, and we'll find ourselves referencing many of these I, I should just say I find myself referencing many of the uh, epigrams in this section um, because oftentimes Nietzsche has elaborated on these ideas elsewhere and it's like these are the condensed um, most artistic witty form of his ideas so very far-reaching chapter, and yet somewhat specific in its context in the work. So let's get into it. As I said last time as well, I'm not going to read every last one of these and elaborate on every last one of these, because 
that would take too long, and unpacking or exegesizing every single one of these. I'm actually going to try to be very brief about my analysis about each one of these uh, sentences, even though I'm sure I will say <laughs> a little more about some of them than others. But just because not only do I think, not only would that practically take forever, but it's a insult or offense to the style, the aphoristic style to do that in some sense, right? Nietzsche's taken this idea and distilled it down into this most simple and direct form. And so going and elaborating about it at great length is almost to just take it and make it ugly to vivisect it, right? Nevertheless, if I've promised you a walkthrough analysis of the text, we're going to have to do that to some extent, but this will probably be the briefest episode, which I think is fitting for this style of the section. So now let's get into it. We'll start with 63, the first one. Quote, whoever is a teacher through and through takes all things seriously only in relation to his students, even himself. End quote. And I think that's Nietzsche's way of conveying to us that even though he, we all have to have the mask, right? That to some extent, there's always a mask because there's always something incommunicable and singular about every human being and their inner contents. Nietzsche, nevertheless, is taking, he's taking things seriously in this book because we are the people he's intending to teach or to give his wisdom to, right? His students in this context. And while he can sort of out of exuberance mock what the philosopher does throughout the beginning of the work that could always raise the question like well is Nietzsche telling the truth when he says that all philosophers wear a mask is he telling the truth when he says every philosopher uh, is just authoring their own involuntary unconscious memoir you know because that wouldn't have to include Nietzsche himself which would mean this book is just his involuntary unconscious memoir and in which case to what extent is he just falsifying the truth because he's already told us that you know he doesn't believe in the objective truth right but i think this first aphorism is a declaration of his sincerity in in his work in his what he's trying to teach 64 quote knowledge for its own sake that is the last snare of morality with that one becomes completely entangled in it once more end quote right so the truth seeking the truth in order to do the good right uh, might be the original Socratic drive to knowledge. Um, eventually, we, we arrive at this will to truth in a completely detached, abstract, dispassionate form. And uh, it becomes the love of knowledge for its own sake. Knowledge not as a means, but as the ends. But this is still morality, because that's an irrational assertion of the value of knowledge. Um Let's see. Uh, we'll skip a couple here. We'll we'll do sixty five a, and that's it's just designated as sixty five a because there were two sections numbered sixty five in different editions of the text. Quote: One is most dishonest to one's God. He is not allowed to sin. End quote. So the um, the holy or the ideal is something that is a reflection of that which is human, all too human. Um, that's what we've been. You know, discussing here that there is no good or holy divine essence separate from what is base or evil or natural or arises naturally, right? One progresses into the other in the human mind and how we perceive these things from our given perspective, right? So one of the one of the ways you could state that is that the idea of God comes out of sin, right? And that our 
representations of God or ideals or anthropomorphisms of God or gods. Um, we do not want to allow these creations, which are come out of our fallible humanity, our fallible human mentation, or uh, our, our human minds, we might just say, um, and yet we've created something sinless. That's the dishonesty in the way that we idealize. And you could, of course, apply this on the level of like, not a literal God, but someone's ideal or their idol, you know, in, the, in, a, in a very, uh, in a sort of an allegorical sense, right? The way we say money could be somebody's God or, you know, uh, a, a musician or an actor could be someone's God. 66, quote, the inclination to depreciate himself, to let himself be robbed, lied to, and taken advantage of could be the modesty of a God among men, end quote. And Kaufman notes, the word modesty here is sham, and most other places this word has been translated into shame. So the shame of a God, the inclination to depreciate himself, let himself be robbed, lied to, and taken advantage of could be the shame of a God amongst men. So I'll leave you to think that one out for yourselves. So what Nietzsche said about the shame of a God could be the mask of its opposite, right? And so to let yourself be robbed, lied to, taken advantage of, to resist not evil, turn the other cheek, let all those things happen to you, could be a mask for your shame, which could be what? Well, we might think in the Christian morality of revenge, that turning the other cheek can actually be pursued perceived as a malicious act from a psychological standpoint, given the writings of Tertullian and other church fathers who rejoice in the idea that they'll forever behold the suffering of the damned, the non-Christians who oppress them, right? And that um, behind this uh, resist not evil idea is the idea that you'll get yours, which is actually very malicious and vindictive. Okay, uh, let's we'll skip this next one. 68, quote, I have done that, says my memory. I cannot have done that, says my pride, and remains inexorable. Eventually, memory yields, end quote. And uh, this is completely true, and the only way you can really know this is for yourself over the long course of life, <laughs> where things that are embarrassing or that you did that were um, immoral according to your own standards or your community standards or just where you didn't measure up um, or where you were just embarrassed yourself, right? Uh, you're going to want to forget those things and your memory will actively edit them to make them not as bad as they really were. Now, for some people, if it's like sufficiently traumatic, they'll be unable to forget, you know, it'll, it'll echo with them forever. Uh, but you know, that's why Nietzsche says, says my pride. So it's, it's really vanity that, um, people who are vain, sufficiently vain will actually misremember themselves in a positive way that pride actually does have that power it's a very powerful force if you don't have that then you know if you have no confident or positive self-image then yeah you probably will remember the shameful and embarrassing things it's that you need some measure of pride to overcome those things but it's a very important aphorism for the way memory works and just on memory and forgetting uh, 69, quote, one has watched life badly if one has not also seen the hand that considerately kills, end quote. And we might just remember Nietzsche's comments at the end of the last section about, you know, the, the, the person with the potential to be a great individual who is botched by the society at large, who doesn't turn out well, right? And Nietzsche basically says, 
the right thing would be would have been not to preserve those types of people right that the, these religions of christianity and buddhism want to preserve everything out of their deep sense of pity and that's part of why pity is such a problem for nietzsche is that he sees this like culling blade of nature as well a natural thing right and so that's why he says watched life badly right what is life that essence of nature right um nature is the essence of life we might say whatever these are <laughs> these words are already kind of like intermediary abstractions on the reality but that if you've looked into nature long enough you haven't seen how it's considerate in what it culls away okay um 70 if quote if one has character one has also uh, one also has excuse me one's typical experience which occurs which recurs repeatedly, end quote. Sorry, I, I butchered that. Um, I only bring this up because I just wanted to point out how if one has character, right? So if you are something definite in the world, then your typical experience recurs repeatedly. And I think there is something, eternal return is one of those things that you can see on many different levels of analysis. There is like the grand thought experiment of eternal return, there is the idea of it as a physical notion, uh, you know, obtaining in actual physics. Um, and then there's sort of like the metaphorical way of looking at it, the way that, uh, or like that you, you could say world historical, seeing patterns, right? Um, and I think there's an element of that here. Okay, 71, quote, the sage as astronomer, as long as you still experience the stars as something above you, you lack the eye of knowledge, end quote. And above you is in scare quotes fairly straightforward that the stars are not above you right that above you beneath you if you're on a globe floating in space those are those directional concepts are perspectival insofar as you don't have any choice as to whether or not to perceive something as above you or beneath you beneath you in terms of your sense of things right what you actual direct sensation like because of gravity, you know, you're, you're going to have a sense of what up and down is as this bipedal being walking around on the terrestrial surface of a planet. But the eye of knowledge, the uh, ability to abstract and to perceive and to understand uh, nature imparts you with this higher wisdom that <laughs> the sage as astronomer, right? Astronomy gives you the notion that your perspective as to what up and down is, is completely relative to your perspective. It's not an absolute. It's just your vantage point. And universalizing the notion of up or down relative to the, your concept of up or down to saying, suggesting that, that this is a law right that exists throughout the entire cosmos uh, is, is nonsensical. It's absurd, but it's what the philosophers have been doing since time immemorial. 72, quote, not the intensity, but the duration of high feelings makes high men, end quote. I've referenced this one a lot, but I think it's, it's funny that Nietzsche comes down on the side of uh, quantity over quality. I mean, I guess you could put them both in terms of quantities or, or, or qualities in a way, but I, it's what makes a high man, right? You could put that a lot of way, an elevated person, somebody with elevated feelings toward life, maybe the kind of person who is saying yes to the joy of their life, 
Or maybe he's speaking about it in the political sense, in the great man sense, right? But I, I think it is more psychological because he directly references feelings. That uh, that it's whether your high, your elevated state of mind endures that uh, is going to allow that consistency of that feeling that's going to allow you to become who you are in that case. Okay, 73, quote, whoever reaches his ideal transcends it eo ipso. Eo ipso means by that token. If you reach your ideal, you transcend it. That's because it can no longer be your ideal. And you would also imagine that there's a demystifying element of that. That's why people sometimes have imposter syndrome, right? They, they, everyone knows how ignorant and, and, you know, faulty they are in so many ways. And then they find themselves into a position of power as a tenured professor or as like a famous musician. And they're like, well, I thought, you know, I thought there was some like mystical, if not mystical, like some mysterious, you know, X factor that all these people had that set them apart from me. And now I see I'm one of them. And I know that there's nothing, you know, mysterious about my own inner content, because of course, it's my own inner content. <laughs> I know it better than anyone else. Um, and so it demystifies when you reach your goal, when you reach the ideal that you've set for yourself, um, that riddle has been solved and that challenge overcome. So it no longer interests you and you, you have to move on to something else. Um, 73A, this is another inaccuracy, quote, uh, inaccurate, sorry, inaccuracy of um, numbering in different editions. Quote, many a peacock hides his peacock tail from all eyes and calls that his pride, end quote. So rather than taking pride in what is beautiful about you, beauty is something that's in appearance that you show the world, right? Taking pride in what you hide from the world. Very uh, Nietzschean idea. Uh, let's skip one. We'll go to 75. Quote, the degree and kind of a man's sexuality reach up into the ultimate pinnacle of his spirit, end quote. And again, I can't help but thinking, uh, but think of Schopenhauer and Nietzsche's assessment of his sexuality as key to his philosophy. But we can, we don't have to keep beating up on Schopenhauer. We can just, we can see how, what would you say, as one of the strongest physiological drives, the sexual drive is going to demand the most uh, profound explanations when confronted by in order for an idea to take charge of a feeling or, or, or for a thought to suppress a feeling, right? Because that's what morality, metaphysics, religion does. And we've talked about how Nietzsche believes that that ability of thoughts to suppress feelings was able to happen. Um, it has to be in you know, that thought must be of equal strength to the feeling that is, is suppressing. So the sublime, you know, spiritual explanations for how we deal with and incorporate sexuality, whether that's to make sex sacred, whether that's to confine it within a ritualized context or within a, you know, something like marriage, um, all of these ways are ways of the religion or the morality of met or metaphysics of a society of dealing with the sexual impulse. And it reaches up to the ultimate pinnacle of the spirit because it has to, the spiritual explanation, the thought, the mental framework for approaching sexuality has to be equally powerful to the drive that it is dealing with. 
76, quote, under peaceful conditions, a warlike man sets upon himself, end quote. And I think a lot of that is explained by Nietzsche believing that this will to power drive is like necessarily, its natural form is to take the form of physical expression on the external world. And, but he believes that that can be turned inward when it is, when that sort of function of the will is suppressed and it turns back in on itself. And a lot of his philosophy involves that idea. Okay. Uh, 78, quote, whoever despises himself still respects himself as one who despises, end quote. So you have, if you despise yourself, you're both the defendant and the accuser, right? And so, so how despicable can you really be? if you are qualified to levy the charge as accuser against yourself, right? Or qualified to judge yourself, we might say. Uh, how despicable, if you judge yourself as despicable, how despicable can you really be? Should you trust the ruling of that judge? And then you could consider all of the funny ways in which psychologically we like to split ourselves into two. And this idea goes back a long, long way, you know, that you have in the old... Jewish canon, the idea of the Yetzer Hara and the Yetzer Hatav, the good and evil inclinations, or the, the, the virtuous and wayward inclinations, we might say, that God put into every man. Um, so there, you have it very early, the idea of this divided soul. Let's uh, go to 80. Quote, a matter that becomes clear ceases to concern us. What was on the mind of that God who counseled know thyself? Did he mean cease to concern yourself? become objective, and Socrates, and scientific men, end quote. So uh, a matter that becomes clear ceases to concern us. Let's cross-reference that with 73. Whoever reaches his ideal transcends it, eo ipso. So what was on the mind of that God who counseled know thyself? That's the, the dictum of the Delphic God. But Nietzsche mentioned Socrates later in the passage. This is a man who said he always had a, a daemon who... Uh, you know, acted as his conscience, this divine spirit, we might say, that followed him around and uh, kept him in line with his own conscience his, or his own reason, right? Um, and so he brings up Socrates and the scientific men. This is the idea, this is a condensed, compacted version of the idea that Socrates is the arrival, the full arrival of the scientific spirit and the will to truth, who therefore counsels us to know ourselves because self-knowledge is the first sort of step towards uh, morality in the Socratic view, right? But if we are to fulfill that ideal of knowing ourselves, we will then transcend that ideal and the self will cease to concern us. And Nietzsche is asking, what did they really mean? Did they mean cease to concern yourself, become objective? So see, cease to be concerned with your own well-being and ambitions in the world Become objective, sacrifice life at the altar of the truth. This kind of approach to the world that is, uh, you know, first created by Socrates, we might say, and then by the road of Platonism and then through Christianity is fully realized in the mind of Europe is to hold the truth above, um, you know, any of your worldly concerns. Martyr yourself for the sake of the truth. That is in large part... Uh, the Christian tradition, to be willing to bear suffering 
oppression, resist not evil, right? All these things for the sake of the truth. Let yourself go. Uh, you know, consider the lilies of the field, how they toil not, right? God will provide for you. Don't worry about it. Um, but you should be willing to die for the truth, right? It's the final consequence of this. Um, so the, but the, the thrust of this passage is that know thyself ends in a lack of concern for everything that the self actually is. All those subjective concerns, all those accidents of our physiology and birth and our history and our circumstances, the, the, the actual stuff that makes up our lives becomes of little concern. Um, 81, quote, It is terrible to die of thirst in the ocean. Do you have to salt your truth so heavily that it does not even quench thirst anymore? End quote. So instead of using the idea of the truth being sweetened, we're using the idea of the truth being salted. But I think the meaning is so straightforward that it almost doesn't bear elaboration. It's mostly the first line. It is terrible to die of thirst in the ocean. Right? And so the truth is all around you. It's very readily accessible. It can be apprehended by the likes of you know, Heraclitus, who didn't have access to the same accumulation of knowledge and technology that we have. He just looked within to his own reason and to what he knew he to be true out of his own self-assuredness, right? And said that he perceived this logos, this pattern in all of nature around him. So the, the ability to apprehend the truth is all around you. It's just that you salt it so heavily that it doesn't quench your thirst anymore. Um, 82, quote, pity for all would be hardness and tyranny toward you, my dear neighbor, end quote. I think it's actually fairly straightforward that pity as an ideology, if it becomes all-encompassing and fully realized as the sole basis of what your moral orientation toward the world is, will, for a number of reasons... Um, create actually a worse reality. We'll make life more hellish. And so pity for all, while it may seem like compassion towards one neighbors, one's neighbors, excuse me, would actually uh, end up very badly for all of them. Um, 83, quote, instinct, when the house burns, one forgets even lunch. Yes, but one eats it later in the ashes. End quote. What does that mean? It means your instincts can't be denied. Um, you know, yeah, you, you, yes, you can temporarily suppress your instincts for existential reasons, some sort of need that is nearby, near to hand, dire need that requires that you don't indulge that instinct or a thought can suppress that instinct. But the truly demanding instincts will... Uh, eat their fill eventually, right? You, <laughs> you will, uh, like if you continue on living, you will have to eat lunch eventually. Okay, 85, quote, the same affects in man and woman are yet different in tempo. Therefore, man and woman do not cease to misunderstand each other, end quote. And remember the passage where Nietzsche talked about different, like sort of national or ethnic characters of like their sort of cultural spirit and how the tempo of their language affects the tempo. It's like the tempo of their thought. That's a reflection of their tempo of thought. Nietzsche is again using the idea of tempo to suggest that this is a difference in men and women, that the same affects of passions drives feelings 
could be felt by members of the opposite sex, and those thoughts will have a different tempo. So we might say perhaps the same feeling to a man or a woman might have a profoundly different gravity to it, a different heaviness, different all-encompassing nature, or it might be experienced by the opposite gender as a more fleeting feeling and something wispy that you don't really doesn't really take hold of you. You don't really grab onto. It's there and gone. Um, I think is largely what he means by uh, tempo. Um, let's see here. 87, quote, tethered heart, free spirit. If one tethers one's heart severely and imprisons it, one can give one's spirit many liberties. I have said that once before, but one does not believe me unless one already knows it, end quote. Yeah, um, I think by, this is an, a way in which freedom is found in limitation and the way in which um, if you tether your heart severely and imprison it, right? So telling yourself which feelings, um, you know, maybe severely limiting which sorts of feelings you're going to chase after and flit after, but this gives your spirit many liberties in terms of your, your geist, your intellect, your, your capacity for, uh, abstraction and, uh, intellectual imagination, right? That might be a good way to put it. Um, I mean, I've often talked about this, that when I'm out on the road touring with my band, you know, you might think that's like a wild free experience, but in a way your whole day is like really regimented (laughs) because you have to be somewhere every single day. You have a schedule to keep. And then there, you have to take care of all your needs in between that. And you have to make sort of group decisions to figure that all out. And so you don't ever wake up and wonder what you're going to do that day right? You have your whole day laid out for you uh, in some sense. But then in that, in the fact that there's no question of who am I, what am I doing, (laughs) what's going on in my life, you're doing exactly what you would be doing if you, uh, you know, had an option over it, right? Um, If you were given the option to choose, you can do anything in the world, what would I, what would I do? Uh, Ideally, in a touring band, everyone is thinking this, (laughs) this is what I would be doing if, uh, nothing else, right? And so you don't have to think about that anymore. And then your appreciation for what's going on around you and then the deeper thoughts that you can kind of have and entertain, you're kind of set apart from the, I don't know, the striving against other wills and competition of the marketplace or the rat race, as we like to call it, right? You've bound your heart and imprisoned it and directed it towards this one thing. And then your mind is a little bit freer um, you can be a little bit more detached. At least that's my experience. Maybe I should just say I and me about all these things instead of second person you. But I have talked to other musicians who feel the same way. I mean, another thing might be like monks and ascetics who basically cut themselves off from everything in the world. And then meanwhile, they're meditating these whole other universes into existence, right? Uh, in pure land Buddhism, that's like literally what they do. They sit there and they like create a whole mindscape of like a whole Buddha realm, right? Um, the heart is bound and the spirit is going wild, right? Okay. Um, 89 quote, terrible experiences pose the riddle, whether the person who has them is not terrible end quote. Um, so I rag on Jordan Peterson on this podcast all the time, but there's a quote of his, I really like where he's talking about, he's like, if you've, you know, been on dates with like a dozen women and they all say you're terrible, the problem isn't women. The problem is you right? And so again, like many of us probably know somebody who's like, take it away from dating, but just like a walking disaster, like a 
clumsy person, right? Or they just like, they're always uh, arriving last late, you know, 10 to 15 minutes late. Everything is last minute. Everything is scheduled last minute. And then, you know, things regularly fall apart on them. You know, events that they plan don't work out because everything's been doing gone going last minute, right? Um, and so it the issue is when Nietzsche is saying whether the person who has them is not terrible, I don't think he's saying in a moral sense. I think he's speaking in that almost the pre-moral sense, the pre-historical sense of morality, right? That uh, you're terrible because of the bad consequences that flow back towards assessing your own value, right? The sort of pure consequentialism of morality prior to know thyself. Um, Nietzsche is invoking that, that we still have a little bit of that moral intuition insofar as the person who's always having terrible experiences poses the riddle to us, raises that question in the back of our mind, like, is it just you who's terrible? Okay. 92, quote, who has not, for the sake of his good reputation, sacrificed himself once, end quote. Uh, yeah, it, throwing yourself on your sword can actually be a way of saving your reputation or your image. It could be required. And, you know, you can actually, you can actually be morally praised in a very strange way, either verbally, outwardly, or just in the way other people perceive you for owning up to things that you did wrong. People respect that, which raises the issue because it is known that that is respected generally, that somebody might actually do something like that out of a calculating decision. Be like, oh, this is the, I don't want to do this, but it's the right thing to do, right? And we all kind of like look at that as an admirable quality if somebody has that thought process. But this is sort of in the way that Nietzsche thinks that there's no selfless, there's no distinction between selfless and selfish action, that one is premised on the other, because this awareness that your selfless action will garner you moral praise can actually motivate people to be selfless for selfish reasons. Okay. 93. Affability contains no hatred of men, but for that very reason, too much contempt for men. End quote. So if you truly respect humanity, and if you're honest with yourself about uh, the way that you're naturally going to feel against people who are perhaps morally oriented against you or, or have done things that you would consider terrible from your own moral standpoint, and you are going to have a moral standpoint if you're a functional human being, then uh, you'll pay them the respect of hating them, being affable with people. Um, there's like a there's a great uh, saying actually about the United States. So um, I think only Americans will really understand this, but it's such a, a wonderful turn of phrase that people on the East Coast are kind, but not nice. Uh, but people on the West Coast are nice, but not kind. And that very much holds true. I, I found now, you know, you might take issue with that uh, <laughs> specific uh, assignment of those traits to the those regions or whatever but the idea of not just the idea of being nice but not kind or kind but not nice i think says a great deal and it's all worth thinking about in regard to uh, the way that we create personas or masks and live in this world of appearances right understanding that the social world is a world of appearances 94 quote 
A man's maturity consists in having found again the seriousness one had as a child at play, end quote. And I've quoted that one very often, and it, I think, ties in with the camel, the lion, and the child. The final transfiguration of the spirit is a new creativity, and what that creativity is, the seriousness of a child at play. Well, you know, you can imagine, like, when I played with Legos, man, I don't know if I've been as serious about that as I have been about anything in my life. <laughs> I mean, that's probably not true, but, uh, you know, the things that I have been serious about in my life are things that have a play to them, that feel like play, right? Okay, uh, 95, quote, to be ashamed of one's immorality, that is a step on the staircase at whose end one is also ashamed of one's morality, end quote. I think this is one of those interludes that is a, a nice bridge from some of the considerations at the end of the last uh, part that we looked at of this sort of the three phases of morality, the eventual sublation or sublimation of morality into a post-moral age, that uh, this is sort of saying, you know, the beginning of the, the beginning of the entire moral project is sort of this like recognition of oneself as uh, not measuring up to the absolute, the abstracted perfect moral standard that we have. And that sort of begins the quest of virtue. I mean, that's, that's what Plato does in the Republic, right? He's like, let's let us craft an ideal perfect state, which is a macrocosm for the ideal perfect individual. It has everything in perfect balance. And then look at the ways in which we do not measure up to that, right? To be ashamed of one's immorality. But that launches this long moral project, which Nietzsche believes ends in the death of God and therefore the death of all morality, right? And so to have been, to now stand at the end of that process, looking back to be ashamed of our morality, to say, wow, we've had this 18th centuries of Christianity, which has really done a lot of harm to the European spirit in Nietzsche's view. That's, uh, I think, the meaning here. 96, quote, one should part from life as Odysseus parted from Nausicaa, blessing it rather than in love with it, end quote. Um, this really reminds me of the, the Taoist, um, the, the conception that the sage loves life but does not cling to life. And this, his non-clinging to the transitory phenomenon of life is the way in which he can love life truly love it, right? There's also a saying in Japanese, mono no aware, which is sort of like the beauty in transitoriness. Um, there's a song by the band Yab called Beauty and Falling Leaves that I think is like a sort of a meditation on this that I recommend you all listen to. 97, quote, what, a great man? I always see only the actor of his own ideal, end quote. Um, I think... This kind of saying um, causes consternation with people who believe in like the great man theory of history. But if you followed along with the whole politics and history season, Nietzsche is very much in favor of that theory as well. It's just that here, in the specific philosophical project that he is setting out upon in Beyond Good and Evil, he is placing that whole theory into the world of appearances. So the actor of his own ideal, there's first the element that every, what would you say, like major historical figure has looked to past examples of people who did the same thing as an inspiration or a monument 
to idealize so that they can sort of take on the mantle of this past figure, right? But all of the, you know, then the way that, you know, Caesar looks back to Alexander the Great, right? But then the, the name Caesar becomes even more, um, you know, uh, impactful through, you know, both the life of Caesar and then like just the word itself, influential on the course of history and on human thought, right? So by taking on the mantle of Alexander, Caesar transcends his ideal, right? By living up to it, Eoepso, he transcends it. Um, and it's, I believe Dan Carlin talks about this in the Caesar episode, how, you know, imagine that you're a Roman aristocrat, there are all these death masks in your house. Like upon dying, they take a mask of your face and then put it up on the wall. And these are like all of your ancestors. And as we talked about in the episodes on Fustel de Collonge, like this is an ancestor worshiping society. That is the form of their religion primarily. And so the young Caesar would have grown up in this environment where he would have seen like there's a room in your house where you have like the faces of all your ancestors who have all had all these great deeds attributed to them, like watching, like, you know, in judgment of you. I might also think of uh, Theoden in Lord of the Rings, right? I got, when he dies in a heroic battle after having uh, led what he, you know, has doubts about his kingship as lackluster as he dies, he says, I go now to my fathers in whose mighty company I shall not now feel ashamed. I'll no longer be ashamed of, uh, you know, the things I said and did. And so there's this ideal or this idea in which uh, that I, Nietzsche is putting forward here insofar as every outward persona is in this world of transitoriness, no being, right? No thing in itselfness. That's what we all are. We have to apply that to ourselves. And so even the great man, the Napoleonic man, the Goethean man, you know, that Nietzsche has looked up to, as uh, you know, the savior of culture is just an—he's another actor, right? He's another appearance. There's nothing beneath that. Um, but the, the, that's not to denigrate, right? That's not to like undercut what you know such a figure is or means for history. It's simply to point out that we are all that, which actually has very interesting implications for like the possibilities for an individual human life right? That you are actually what you do. And that because you don't have like an underlying substance or essence, the possibilities for you might be endless for you to become who you are, right? 99, quote, the voice of disappointment. I listened for an echo and heard nothing but praise, end quote. Uh, So yeah, you want an echo, somebody like an Alexander wants a Caesar, right? But praise, the thing we, we pretend like all people want. This is in the same way like Nietzsche didn't want praise. He wanted fellow free spirits, right? He wanted other people who would share in his project. He didn't want, um, he would see that as like what Wagner um, got seduced by, just being praised by a bunch of lesser people. Whereas Nietzsche wanted camaraderie and kinship with fellow thinkers. Um, 100, quote, in front of ourselves, we all pose as simpler than we are. Thus, we take a rest from our fellow men, end quote. And I think there's an element there of the fact that our self-judgment is always informed by the voice of the community. It's like a manifestation of the voice of the community to some extent. And just, you know, alone by ourselves in front of the mirror, we pose as simpler than we all are. We take a rest from psychologizing 
ourselves judging, penetrating into ourselves. If, if we want to have a little peace from the crowd, because that process of evaluate, like identity is a socially negotiated thing. And so, um, letting go of that for a little while is a way of mental solitude from everyone else. 100, or sorry, this is 101. Quote, today the man of knowledge might well feel like God become animal, end quote. And this, I think, has to do with Nietzsche's idea of the gloomy but more honest 19th century that has brought up the animal and man. There's that aphorism in human all to human, truth is seersay. Uh, Error has turned animals into men, might truth turn men into animals again. But we feel like a god become man because we have this godlike intellect. Um, You know, we've made ourselves the measure of all things, the judge of all existence. People presume to judge whether life is good or bad or not, right? And uh, having placed ourselves in this position of a, of a, um, what would you say, like absolute perceiver, absolute judge over reality, we then find that we're just animals. 102, quote, discovering that one is loved in return really ought to disenchant the lover with the beloved. What? This person is modest enough to love even you, or stupid enough, or, or, end quote. Yeah, I think there, there is some psychological truth to this that I've, I've heard of recently, that there are, that there, the Greek model of romance was actually accurate, that there's always one partner who is sort of like the beloved and the other one that's the lover, that obviously it goes both ways and every functional relationship or serious relationship but there's one who's more desired and then the one who is more desiring and i think nietzsche's pointing out that that reciprocity of desire um in a way is a sort of unsettling thing for many people because of all of our inner you know all those inner contents we've been talking about that involves all those pathologies and shames and the voices of the community inside of our heads and so on and so forth um, we're always the, the harshest judges over ourselves, aren't we? Um, maybe there's an element of this, like, uh, Groucho Marx, who said, I wouldn't want to be part of any club that would have me as a member. 104, not their love of men, but the impotence of their love of men keeps the Christians of today from burning us, end quote. So, um, I'm just going to read Kaufman's note here as the interpretation, because I think he, he gets it just fine. Quote, if Christians were really passionately concerned for the salvation of their, of their fellow men in the hereafter, they would still burn those whose heresies lead lesions into eternal damnation. End quote. Yeah, I mean, it's funny how people will talk about concepts like heaven and hell and God and the devil with like barely an ounce of the sincerity that people used to, that used to inform the actions and the very lives of people who, who formerly believed this during the time, you know, the peak of Christendom and the medieval times and yet if they truly took these ideas seriously they would still be burning heretics and atheists right they're endangering people's souls forever and ever like you're okay with somebody preaching something that could mislead your child like you're the thing you love more than anything else in the world um could end up being tortured forever if you really took that idea seriously you would be on a crusade right (laughs) but you know they're not um the impotence of their love of men keeps the Christians today from burning us. So that it doesn't imply, right, that they've actually have a waning faith, but they actually maybe don't 
they don't feel that love of mankind as strongly as they claim to. Maybe there's an element of what we talked about before. I'm turning the other cheek, but actually inside I'm thinking, yeah, you'll get yours, right? And Christianity's always had that element to it, going back to the book of Revelation. 105, quote, the pia fraus, that means pious fraud or holy lie, um, you know, a, a reference to Plato's Republic, uh, which we, you know, as we talked about during that episode, could be translated as magnificent myth. It doesn't necessarily mean, have the implications of a lie, but um, this idea has still originating with Plato trickled into the consciousness that sort of implies like a lie for good intentions where the ends justify the means, but you bend the truth, right? Okay. Quote, the Piafraus offends the taste, the piety of the free spirit, who has the piety of the search for knowledge even more than the Impiafraus. Hence his profound lack of understanding for the church, a characteristic of the type free spirit, his unfreedom. End quote. So <laughs> the free spirit is, in a way, the most unfree because he is so absorbed. He's imprisoned his heart, right? He's directed his passions, so he's so completely given style to his character and oriented his character and his life toward his goals that um, it's not this flighty, uh, uncommitted, what would you say, sort of, you know, flitting about sort of freedom. It's a freedom in which one has invested everything into what they feel is the best or most worthwhile expenditure of their life while they're on earth, right? And so for Nietzsche, and I think for the philosophical free spirit, the piety of the search for knowledge, right? This is, this aphorism is really important because again, it's like Nietzsche's not irrationalist or anti-truth. It's just that he thinks when you really search for the truth, what you find is so many of the things we've said about truth are so, so wrong, right? And the dogmatic philosophy of the past was so, so wrong. But it's not the that the impia fraus that, that motivates the free spirit. It's not just we want to say edgy things. It's uh, the, the piety for the actual, a true will to truth, right? A true search for the truth is actually felt very strongly with the free spirit, and he cannot feel otherwise, right? That's his unfreedom. 106, quote, in music, the passions enjoy themselves, end quote. Music is pure passion. It's pure, it's formless. There's no imagistic representation of music. Music is the purest form of art in Nietzsche's view, as it was for Schopenhauer and I think Hegel, um, because of this formless, non-imagistic quality, it is just the emotional resonance of art. 107, quote, once the decision has been made, close your ear even to the best counter-argument, sign of a strong character, thus an occasional will to stupidity, end quote. And so right after I say Nietzsche is not an irrationalist, here he says an occasional will to stupidity. But uh, when I talked with Carl in that episode recently about James Burnham, and he had his like rules for life that he wrote down, and one of them was, if there's no alternative, there's no problem, Right. Sometimes when you've made a decision, it pays to stick to it and entertaining alternatives after the fact can only be harmful. And even if somebody presents you with some alternative course of action that might sound good, if you've already committed and put forward the resources towards something, 
it might be good to have a will to stupidity, to ignorance, to shut your ears to this and say, no, 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 we're committed. We're all in. And, you know, that the idea here is, for one, it's occasional, so not all the time, but it may actually be stupid in some cases. But as a general rule, this might be an indication of a strong character into somebody who in the long term is uh, is adopting a mode of life or of managing their life that is going to produce a stronger or better outcome to maintain your commitment to the things you've earnestly committed to 108 quote there are no moral phenomena at all but only a moral interpretation of phenomena end quote one of the best most straightforward statements of nietzsche's moral call it relativism i've called it fictionalism in the past um perspectivism uh definitely though anti-moral realism nietzsche is not there's no moral realist um interpretation of nietzsche now you know you could get into like paul katsafanis and the constitutivist view of nietzsche based on will to power but i think it's very important insofar as nietzsche in this passage says there are no moral phenomena right? The phenomena of themselves. Morality is not an objective fact you discover in the world. All that falls victim to the thing in itself whole way of approaching the world, right? Okay. 109, quote, a criminal is frequently not equal to his deed. He makes it smaller and slanders it, end quote. So, you know, uh, you go on the stand to defend yourself as a defendant in your case, and you say, Your Honor, I didn't really mean to do that, you know, bank robbery. I was uh, never held as a child. And, uh, you know, really, I just needed the money so badly. And, uh, you know, I, you know, t- took care. I didn't want anyone to get killed in that, you know, that brutal act that I admit now was wrong, right? He makes the act smaller and slanders it. That's, and in some sense, Nietzsche is not criticizing the criminal. He's criminalizing or he's criticizing our, the morality that laces our entire criminal justice system and wants people to repent, right? How Christian our criminal justice system is. When in reality, you know, the bank robber is probably just like, he's, he's living as an outlaw, as somebody who doesn't care about the boundaries established, the moral and legal boundaries established by society, and is acting in accord with maybe an honest expression of his instincts to just take whatever he can get and be a dominating, you know, uh, he's living, he's returning to nature. He's being an animal figure. And Nietzsche does say a lot of his great men, uh, you know, had like Napoleon had criminal aspects of him, right? It's just the accidents of history and the way that he took advantage of the situation. He made himself way more than that. So there's, there's an aspect of even like the, the sort of the lowly criminal that Nietzsche thinks there's something like, you know, there's some aspect of humanity or of like the animal kingdom that's represented in such a figure that he doesn't entirely, um, you know, dislike if I can put it in those, those really simple vulgar terms, but here he's not even really talking about that. He's just sort of pointing out how, uh, the criminal is compelled to, to make his deed seem like not quite what it was to, to falsify it. Right. he, the way that our morality about criminal justice compels people to falsify, maybe even in their own memory, the way that they conceive of 
the motivations behind their actions and even the actual history of things that, as they played out, right? Okay, 110, quote, The lawyers defending a criminal are rarely artists enough to turn the beautiful terribleness of his deed to his advantage, end quote. And fairly straightforward, I just read it because it's like the other side of the coin to 109, right? It's like, what would it look like if criminals didn't do that? And how could the lawyer turn the beautiful terribleness of his de- of his deeds? You know, we might imagine a, a lawyer arguing for the, you know, on behalf of a serial killer, describing him as a type of artist or something. You know, look at the 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 amazing the thought and the depth that, and the 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 technique that went into these killings. This man is a real artist, and and we should, you know, we should take that into account and not give him such a harsh sentence, right? Um, but he's actually saying the lawyers are rarely artists enough to do that. And I think there's, there's, the, there's some tongue in cheek in this passage from Nietzsche, right? Because in what way could you actually do that? Now, what is funny is that if you do look at it, like say, who was a famous criminal, who's a philosopher, perhaps the most famous philosopher, Socrates, Socrates dies as a criminal. He's executed by the Athenians for crimes that he defends himself uh, for in court and fails to persuade the jury. And one of the reasons why is because in his apology, he basically admits to the crimes that they're charging him with, right? Uh, in in so many ways, uh, in sort of an ironic way. And we're going to talk about this when we talk about the apology next season. But uh, in a way that Socrates, being an artist, which is another irony. He's being an artist of trying to turn the beautiful terribleness of his deed, of actually corrupting the youth and turning them away from the gods of the city because he kind of was doing that and turning that to his advantage, right? Of course, he wasn't artist enough because he still was executed. 113, quote, you want to prepossess him in your favor, then pretend to be embarrassed in his presence, end quote. And uh, I don't know. This really reminds me of the style of Le Rochefoucauld. There's a couple I skipped over that are also very much like Le Rochefoucauld. But um, this type of observation, I think, is certainly not universal. It's funny because the whole thing is in is in quotes, right? So it's it's being uh, quoted as if it's like a piece of dialogue, which sort of brings our mind around to the idea. Maybe this is contextual. Maybe it doesn't apply in in all cases, but. The idea of, you know, if you meet a celebrity and you're super not see embarrassed might be a weird way to translate it, but nervous, anxious, but in a way where you're sort of falling over yourself to uh, in front of them or, you know, maybe uh, nervous in your speech and appearing like you're no, you know, you know, not good enough to be in your presence. Right. This is this outside of, you know, we might normally think, how do you. How do you make somebody regard you in a positive way? Well, praise them or thank them or all these things. But he's saying, uh, look embarrassed in, in their presence. And that will, that will feed their vanity, right, to a high degree. 114, quote, The enormous expectation and sexual love and the sense of shame in this expectation spoils all perspective for women from the start. End quote. So... <laughs> He says perspective for women, so I'm assuming he means the perspective of women. You could look at it as perspective, all perspective on the issue of women or all perspective uh, of women themselves on the world. Um, 
either way, Nietzsche is necessarily sort of tying a woman's perspective to sexual love, or we might just say like romantic love, and then looking at how this has been, you know, this particular drive in humanity has been disturbed by Christian morality, or perhaps we might say Wilhelmine German society. The thing is that he is making this tie between women, like their their role is sort of indelibly bound up with sexual or romantic love. And this is what spoils perspective for women. Um, so, you know, you can take that or leave it. Uh, but we can definitely see uh, Nietzsche's, uh, his uh, beliefs about, <laughs> his opinions about women there in this one which are somewhat infamous. Okay, uh, the next one too, 115, quote, where neither love nor hatred is in the game, a woman's game is mediocre, end quote. And I think this is like a flip side of hell hath no fury, like a woman's scorn, um, that what Nietzsche's saying here is that a woman, uh, she's at her best in the game, the social type of warfare, when she's strongly motivated uh, with, you know, deep... Uh, feelings toward the person that she's engaging with, whereas men might be able to, um, you know, he just says in the game, right? But we can imagine this could apply to so many different things, social competition, right? The, the contest, the, 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 the Aegon that still exists today, women will succeed better in social competition when they're uh, invested emotionally. Men might, by contrast, succeed better when they're more calculating, or detached from their feelings about somebody. Um, and he does, I guess he doesn't say they're, they're terrible. He says their game is mediocre, right? Okay. 116, quote, The great epochs of our life come when we gain the courage to rechristen our evil as what is best in us, end quote. And uh, that is truly a, a, a hard, terrible task to set before yourself, to find the courage to rechristen what you thought of as evil as your best. I mean, because most of the, evil is a strong word, right? And in spite of how liberated many of the Nietzsche podcast audience is, I'm sure we all still entertain ideas like that because it's just in the oxygen around us. And that Nietzsche says this will mark off the great epoch in our life because in some sense that's you transcending or overcoming some aspect of you that you thought was some idea of sin that you had some moral, in other words, a moral overlay over reality. One more of those overcome. We'll go to 117 quote, the will to overcome an affect is ultimately only the will of another or of several other affects end quote. So this is the idea that the intellect is merely a tool or a weapon in the hands of a drive. It's not that you have, reason or the ego consciousness or some arbitrary rational governor that is sorting out yourself. What you have is actually conflict and competition between competing forces, your drives or impulses within you and your will. When you experience the will to overcome one of your drives, it's another drive that wishes to obtain the advantage in this. 120, quote, sensuality often hastens the growth of love so much that the roots remain weak and are easily torn up, end quote. Uh, there's that line in Romeo and Juliet where, you know, Romeo is in, in love with Juliet, but he's talking to father so-and-so. I don't, I don't remember, like the friar. He's talking to like a friar, right? I, I think so. It's been a long time since I've read it, but I always remember this line because he's basically saying, 
You're always falling in love with girls every week, Romeo. I, I, I guess a man's love doesn't lie in his heart, but in his eyes, right? Uh, and so sensuality, right? The sensual, being struck with like sensual beauty um, hastens the growth of love so much the roots remain weak and are easily torn up that you just, when it's based on sensuality, it's not rooted very strongly. 121, quote, it was subtle of God to learn Greek when he wished to become an author and not to learn it better, end quote. Um, and I don't know enough about biblical, you know, translation and, and exegesis based on like the original languages, but this is a dig at the, at the Bible um, in a way one that's been made about by a lot of stand-up comedians in the wake of Nietzsche as well, that the Bible uh, is not the best book of all time. And uh, you would think that it would be, but Nietzsche is here like giving like a backhanded compliment, right? Well, at least he, he took the time to learn Greek and, you know, uh, which it's funny because I, I mean, presumably the original text would not have been in Greek, but okay. 122 quote, Enjoying praise is in some people merely a courtesy of the heart and just the opposite of vanity of the spirit, end quote. And I think this is follows from some of the other observations, psychological observations we've looked at in this section, right? That uh, praise is not what people necessarily want. And um, enjoying the praise of others can just be another way of, of, of social nicety, right? It's another obligation, to thank people for their praise of you. And it can be like onerous or burdensome. 123, quote, even concubinage has been corrupted by marriage, end quote. Uh, this is, I think, people talk about like the whip passage in Zarathustra. I think this is one of the most like, I'm being careful with my words because I've recently been challenged on calling Nietzsche a misogynist and more on that later. Well, I, I, I'm going to do at least a short episode like addressing that. And why I've said that. And, and also, I mean, I, I, it made me think a lot about the way I use words, actually, um, which may not be the same as everyone uses words, but which I think is a fairly logical way. Anyway, it kind of takes us far afield. I'll just say this passage basically saying that it was better when women were just concubines um, than, you know, marriage, like some sort of, you know, because even in those times, it's, marriage isn't even like this equal relationship that it's perceived as today whereas concubinage is like you know basically a form of somewhere between slavery and marriage right and so Nietzsche yearning for that again to me it's kind of an embarrassing passage okay 124 quote whoever rejoices on the very stake triumphs not over pain but at the absence of pain that he had expected a parable end quote whoever rejoices on the stake, right? So you're being burned at the stake and your, your sense that you're a holy martyr, right? Beloved by God. This isn't actually a triumph over pain, but that you, such a person, I think Nietzsche is suggesting that such a belief can actually nullify the pain. That this uh, conviction in the imminent truth of the kingdom of heaven, um, you know, the, 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 the very fact that somebody could actually rejoice while on the stake must point to the fact that it has this like sedating quality, um, that beliefs could affect our perception of our own pain in that way. And maybe Nietzsche has a very 
pained person throughout his life had experience with this. Okay, uh, 125, quote, when we have to change our mind about a person, we hold the inconvenience he causes us very much against him, end quote. That is so, so true. I mean, there have been so many people, especially like among, we'll say like political commentators throughout the years, or just public figures who I've had to change my mind over them. And it's not like uh, somebody like Sam Harris or Jordan Peterson for that matter, right? Um, but it's not always in a bad way, right? But it's almost worse if there's somebody that you really almost like loathed and then they start saying and doing things that you agree with or find laudable um, or like think are the right thing to do and you start to, you know, see that person as like a good representative or a good ideal, whereas previously you saw them as something bad, um, you do hold it against them. Like, fuck you for making me change my mind about you. We resent the mental labor of it for a large part, but also the inconvenience that that causes us is also the social inconvenience of what everyone else will think of us for having been wrong about you, right? So especially if any of this is public, Uh, this doesn't even just apply to like public figures. It could apply to your friends, right? If you really vouch for somebody and then you find out he's a liar who stole money from your friend or something like that, and everyone knows you, you've out, you're like, Hey, this is my buddy from back in school. And then he turns out to be a total scumbag and everyone hates him. And then you have to reevaluate how would you think of this person in light of what they've done. That's a great inconvenience because now everyone will look at you as the guy who was wrong <laughs> or like they'll look at you as somebody who's, who's sense, you know, for like what a good, who's a good person and who isn't is kind of off. And with suspicion and and by your own admission, if you've admitted that you're wrong, right? So it's a great inconvenience to you and it works the other way too. Okay. Um, 126 quote, a people is a detour of nature to get six or seven great men. Yes. And then to get around them, end quote. And, you know, I think that's fairly clear if you listen to most of the podcast that Nietzsche thinks the, this is the harvest of culture, the means and the ends, the, the sum total of culture is found in individuals and that you're only going to get like six or seven great ones out of a whole people out of a whole nation but very often people forget that last part yes and then to get around them right nature is absolutely uh ruthless in the culling right um they become just like as we brought up before you know alexander is this great image to caesar but then caesar way surpasses alexander and then who cares about Alexander anymore? I mean, I know people still do. People still talk about him. But, um, you know, the, the, the endless progression and dynamics of life are of such a nature that we forget, and rightly so, the earlier iterations. I mean, what is ape to man? A laughingstock and painful embarrassment. Okay. Uh, 128, quote, The more abstract the truth is that you would teach the more you have to seduce the senses to it, end quote. This is wonderful writing advice, and everyone should uh, take this, even if you're just talking about literary fiction. Anything abstract you're trying to convey, so abstracted, quality abstracted from the specific object or some idea or notion that's not tied to a specific context, become more concrete in describing it. If, you, if the senses can't grab onto anything, they're not going to grab onto the idea. 129, 
quote, the devil has the broadest perspectives for God. Therefore, he keeps so far away from God, the devil being the most ancient friend of wisdom, end quote. So there is a, an irony here or a sarcastic element to this insofar as we might, you know, the old saying is the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. But the way Nietzsche thinks of wisdom, right? He thinks that's one of the, the, the moral prejudices we've had about the truth, that in fact, an actual penetrating, probing application of the will to truth always makes you wicked and immoral because you have to probe at the very metaphysical and moral boundaries that have been set by your society in order to uh, actually sincerely carry out that search for the truth. And so I think the devil being the friend of wisdom, well, that's a concrete image seducing the senses to an abstract idea, right? The concrete image is Mephistopheles and Faust, right? The, the man of wisdom, the greatest man of wisdom eventually comes to the devil and says, take me beyond the bounds of ordinary human knowledge of everything in which all these categories of knowing in which my thought has been circumscribed. Let's do some magic. Let's explore the Let's explore the human experience, right? The upper bounds of pain and pleasure and tragedy and the whole history of human thought. That's, and that's the, the, the journey that the devil takes Faust on is a journey through experience and life. And that's where uh, Faust actually finally learns to, uh, you know, he's thinking about killing himself at the beginning of the, the, the novel. And at the end, uh, he is saying, abide moment, you are so fair. One thirty. Quote, what a man is begins to betray itself when his talent decreases, when he stops showing what he can do. Talent, too, is finery. Finery, too, is a hiding place. End quote. So much of this is about the self as this, this created thing of what is manifest with the, with the strange thought that we do have a hidden underworld within ourselves that the rest of the world doesn't see. But the... In some sense, the mutual perception of that is a reality we have to grapple with because we all know we have this inner world and by extrapolation that other people do too. And yet, it, perhaps it's that kind of consideration that forever fuels this idea of the, the real and apparent world, right? But if we are just living in the apparent world and, and understanding how the social world, so maybe I'll put it this way, how so much of our confusion has been ascribing to appearances the character of things in themselves. And the, it, in a way, we're not human beings, we're human doings. That the way we perceive and create an image of someone else is on what they do. And what they are begins to betray itself when his talent decreases, when he stops showing what he can do. Talent to is finery, finery to is a hiding place. And so it's like, in absentia of somebody adopting that social role and displaying a talent for something, something useful, some practical or powerful skill that they have over the world, we see what's actually on the inside. Or to, to speak more properly, what was previously hidden but still there uh, merges, becomes part of that simulation of that person. Um, and Nietzsche, I really am getting the impression that he doesn't necessarily think this is a good thing or else it wouldn't be a betrayal, right? 132, quote, one is best punished for one's virtues, end quote. 
This is sort of a variation on our idea. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. Um, but uh, maybe in a, a, that sort of suggests, right, that you start out trying to do the good or the ends justify the means, but you end up at a place where you've done immoral things. This is really, in a way, suggesting, um, it's speaking of the actual material consequences to you, right? Um, and that will be where you're best punished is for the, the value judgment commitments that you have made. Um, 134, quote, all credibility, all good conscience, all evidence of truth comes only from the senses, end quote. This is a, another good reminder, right? And it's, but it's important the way in which Nietzsche is not a Kantian about this, right? The, he, the Kantian would say, therefore, there's a type of truth that is hidden from the senses. Nietzsche would say, therefore, uh, truth it only exists within the senses, senses. Excuse me. Okay, 136, quote, One seeks a midwife for his thoughts, another someone whom he can help. Origin of a good conversation, end quote. So Socrates often spoke of himself as simply a midwife for the virtue of, of others, or that the you know, something of that nature. So uh, seeking a midwife for their thoughts, right? Looking for someone to bounce ideas off of, and another somebody whom he can help, right? Uh, someone whom he can be the midwife to. Um, this is an, a way of putting the conversation into lover, beloved category. They're active and passive role, right? There is that kind of aspect throughout this that even applies to the male and female observations. It might not apply on the level of actual historical gender roles, but on a more psychological, maybe perhaps what would later be called a Jungian level, right? Okay. Uh, 138, quote, when we are awake, we also do what we do in our dreams. We event and make up the person with whom we associate and immediately forget it, end quote. Um, yeah, there is an aspect of the dreaming mind that Nietzsche likes to abduct in order to explain how the mistakes or errors that our waking mind makes in falsifying the world. And that we invent and make up the person with whom we associate. So the person we are... <laughs> We are crafting, we are interpreting and perceiving the mask that they have shown to the world in a way that there's an aspect of our perception of others that is entirely within, it's entirely owes to us and who we are, to our perspective, right? And remains forever within that world of appearance. Okay, 141, quote, the abdomen is the reason why man does not easily take himself for a god, end quote. And this is a line written by a man with lifelong stomach and indigestion problems, right? But, you know, you cut underneath, you know, if you look like uh, underneath the, the skin of the abdomen, right? This mess of organs and intestines and everything, this physical reality this the, the inner workings of what we are with all the bile and blood and muscles and tissue and all that and the way that it often goes wrong right you get gunk in your gallbladder your stomach gives you hell if you're Nietzsche um, this is why we this is why we know that we are not gods <laughs> okay 143 quote our vanity desires that what we do best should be considered what is hardest for us concerning the origin of many a morality, end quote. 
and this is largely what Nietzsche says in on the thousand and one goals and thus spoke Zarathustra whatever was hardest most difficult the rarest thing for a people required the most sacrifice the most effort the most ex, ex, uh, expenditure of power we might say is what they called sacred Okay, 144, quote, When a woman has scholarly inclinations, there is usually something wrong with her sexually. Sterility itself disposes one toward a certain masculinity of taste. For man is, if I may say so, the sterile animal. End quote. So, again, there is a association with... Let's, let's take it away from, from men and women, strictly speaking, and more like the masculine and the feminine, that the feminine is like the associated with the sensuous and the sexual and the romantic and that the male we might think of as more apollinean keeping things at a distance drawing boundary lines this is why i think he's saying the male is the sterile animal but um you know nietzsche's views on men and women aside i think this is an interesting especially given that he the 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 term for the soul in german is female um i think this has interesting implications Okay, 146, one of the most famous quotes from Nietzsche that uh, we, many of us have encountered as a quotation before a movie or video game, quote, whoever fights monsters should see to it that in the process he does not become a monster. And when you look long into an abyss, the abyss also looks into you, end quote. So choose your enemies carefully because that is who you're going to become. I believe it was... Ma'anan Sheila who said that and that is sort of a variation on the same theme and it almost wouldn't do to elaborate too much on this but I would just simply say this applies in a literal historical sense and the way things can escalate in physical conflict it applies in the philosophical sense as well and in the religious sense in 149, Nietzsche writes, quote, What a time experiences as evil is usually an untimely echo of what was formerly experienced as good, the atavism of a more ancient ideal, end quote. Um, I'm pulling references from everywhere today, but you know that movie Sin City? Uh, there's a great line where Clive Owen's character is looking at, I believe it's Mickey Rourke, who's like this brutish barbarian of a man, and he basically says he was just born in the wrong epoch. If he had been born in the Roman times and had been able to, you know, spill blood on the sands of the gladiatorial arena, he would have been at the top of society as a celebrity and a rich man and, you know, lived a wonderful life. But instead, he was born in modern times, so he is an atavism, atavism meaning a throwback. And this is also what Nietzsche, the way he talks about people like Napoleon and Caesar, that uh, they're experienced as evil in the moment, but really they're just a return to nature, actual nature, human nature. 150, quote, around the hero, everything turns into a tragedy. Around the demigod, into a satyr play. And around God, what? Perhaps into world? End quote. Um, so around the hero, everything turns into tragedy. So something about the heroic that is about... Um, you know, the confrontation with impermanence and mortality and human, the individual human being does not ever win that fight. That's why the tragic hero is always destroyed at the end of the tragedy. The demigod, it, it, it turns into a satyr play because uh, the, the satyr play is like a mix of co- the comic and the tragic. It's the tragic comic, right? It's sort of like the, a higher perspective on life and around God, what perhaps into world. 
And I must admit, this is a bit opaque to me as to what Nietzsche is trying to say here. He does have God with a capital G. It's unclear to me whether he's trying to say something actually metaphysical about like, like what, uh, you know, that the world might just be the psychological reflection of a God or something of that nature, materialized, concretized. Um, is he playing around with Berkeley and idealism, something of that nature, looking at the world as an allegory for a mind? Or, and this is maybe more likely, is he saying something about what theism, God belief, says about us psychologically, that it is the assertion of a world in which intelligence precedes material and in which an intelligence governs everything, a personal intelligence. Okay. Uh, 152, quote, where the tree of knowledge stands, there is always paradise. Thus speak the oldest and the youngest serpents, end quote. And I think there's another maybe subtle reference to Faust there where, uh, you know, Mephistopheles puts on the clothes of a scholar and he meets a young student and basically says like, you know, the student is interested in studying all these topics and Mephistopheles says, you know, it's this promise to the student at the uh, the, you know, the, the devil dressing up as a scholar, his promise to the young student about to enter the university is that you shall become equal with God and possess a knowledge of all things good and evil, which is the promise of the serpent, you know, to, to Adam and Eve that you will be, you'll become like God. That's why God doesn't want you to eat of this. This knowledge will make you godlike. Um, and that is, comes with the implicit promise that a paradise lies at the end of it. But of course, paradise doesn't lie at the end of it. In Faust part two, when we meet that young scholar again, He's now jaded and cynical, right? And of course, the entire story of Faust is that knowledge doesn't lead to happiness. And that's the rub, right? Uh, it, it, you, this knowledge may make you powerful, but it doesn't make you happy. 153, quote, whatever is done from love always occurs beyond good and evil, end quote. So call back to the title and a wonderful formula for understanding what beyond good and evil is not not because i want to overestimate the value of love which i think happens quite a bit in our ideologies our moral ideologies and religions and so on but because it points to some aspect of human life that there are feelings and motivations which are unquestionable and pre-rational or non-rational and by that very token are sort of like an act of self-forgetting in which case morality doesn't enter into the picture and how many things would we classify as immoral that were done in the name of love which in fact just simply had an amoral origin because love was simply this all-encompassing dominating motivation 156 quote madness is rare in individuals but in groups parties nations and ages it is the rule End quote. I don't really have a comment on that. I think I think it's so self-explanatory. It doesn't need to be commented on. I just wanted to read it. 157, quote, the thought of suicide is a powerful comfort. It helps one through many a dreadful night, end quote. Also a very oft-quoted line of Nietzsche's. And I think it's because of the, he's pointing to something that is paradoxical in nature and the very essence of beyond good and evil, right? Of breaking down this bifurcated thinking we have, that the thought of suicide might actually be the antidote to suicide. The imagination of it, far from encouraging the actual act, can serve as like a substitute for the act in some sense. 
there's other interpretations of this as well, but that's what I look into it, or that's what I see in, in it. 158, quote, to our strongest drive, the tyrant in us, not only our reason bows, but also our conscience, end quote. So it's not our reason or an independent voluntary governor that uh, determines our actions, de- determines who and what we are, right? It is our strongest drive because it's always a competition between drives within the self. And that's the tyrant in us. That's what's actually ruling. There's some drive that's become tyrannical. And even our conscience will bow to it, right? Our, our moral intuitions are going to, um, you know, they seem to be something objective or coming from the lap of being, but are in fact just the voice of this drive. 159, quote, one has to repay good and ill, but why precisely to the person who has done us good or ill, end quote. And that's true. That's not actually required by the drive. People engage in substitutionary violence, right? Where they'll, I mean, this would go back to the time of like tribal warfare, but, you know, they, they, uh, what is it, uh, Sean Connery, they send one of our boys to the hospital, we send one of their boys to the morgue. Um, right? Uh, it's, it's acceptable to use one of the enemy clan as a surrogate for the one who attacked you. So uh, we'll move on. Um, 160, quote, one no longer loves one's inside enough once one communicates it, end quote. And this is the idea, again, that there's always something incommunicable about our deepest wisdom or the most fundamental facts or psychological aspects about us are totally singular. And once you try to take your insight and contort it into this this box, you know, uh, mutilate it into words, um, that's a sign that you don't love that insight enough. 161, quote, poets treat their experiences shamelessly. They exploit them, end quote. Uh, this, is, uh, this is very true in a way. Um, and I feel this with like, certainly with like music and all sorts of things, you, you do feel an exploitative element of taking things from your life and turning them into a form of entertainment for others. Now you tell yourself that you're doing it for some deeper reason for art, right? But um, so, and I, I certainly think that can be the case. Nietzsche is simply pointing out the ways in which art naturally demands immorality of us. Okay. Um, 164, quote, Jesus said to his Jews, the law was written for servants, love God as I love him as his son. What are morals to us sons of God? End quote. And this is Jesus referencing the Psalms and making all men into sons of God. And it's another way in which Nietzsche sees this as beginning on the path of morality. And it's like prefigured or prophesized in Jesus's statement here. It's the self-overcoming of morality, right? The self-overcoming of morality. Okay, um, next one. 166, quote, even when the mouth lies, the way it looks still tells the truth, end quote. Again, fairly straightforward, but I, I, I just love the, the turn of phrase, right? That um, in some way, people are always telling you the truth. Um, this is the pantomime, right? The ability to to study the face and the body language to find uh, what the tr- the actual truth is, um, the flaws in the mask, the flaws in the persona. 
167, quote, in men who are hard, intimacy involves shame and is precious, end quote. And that's an aspect of life that uh, I think is often misunderstood, right? Like if you have a, like, let's say a stoical moral code or something like that, you know, or like men who are hard, you know, presumably he's talking about like soldiers, people who have seen, you know, and done, been in violent situations or have had to harden themselves in some way. Opening up and being vulnerable, which is necessary for intimacy, involves shame. And we might like look at that as bad, like being ashamed of some natural feeling or basic human need is bad, right? Shouldn't be ashamed. You should be able to be intimate. But he says, and it's precious. And so in some sense, the things that we're ashamed of, the things that we very rarely want to show to the outside world or partake in or, or um, we never want to give that desire its due because it's some way in which we've imprisoned our heart, right? It's precious whenever we do. And the rarity of it, the rarity, the, the true beauty of, a, of someone becoming vulnerable is almost proportionate to the fact of their hardness, right? To see a, a strong, you know, like a hardened warrior weep, right? Like moves you way more than somebody who, you know, is just like cries at the drop of a hat. Then it doesn't mean anything. Okay, 168, quote, Christianity gave Eros poison to drink. He did not die of it, but degenerated into a vice. End quote. So Christian love replaces Eros as this like romantic, passionate uh, Greek view of love. And Eros didn't die, but he degenerated. Like the poison crippled and weakened him, and now he's just something vicious. It's no longer a virtue to love in the romantic, passionate sense. Right? You can only love God, right, in the Christian ethos. 169, quote, talking about oneself can also be a means to conceal oneself, end quote. There are some people who cannot stop talking, and that is certainly can be a means of their concealing themselves in terms of, just imagine somebody engaging in endless superficial conversation of like, oh my God, I had the worst time on the trip here, and then never fly with this airline because they're so terrible, and we had some food, you know, like maybe it's a series of complaints. That's, you know, what just immediately came to mind. And there's something that's, that is very superficial about that. That's not telling you very much about that person. That there, you might learn something deeper about someone by discussing, say, deep ideas something that is apparently abstract, you might learn a great deal more about their soul, like their real inner content, than hearing all the events of someone's day recounted to you. Okay, 170, quote, praise is more obtrusive than a reproach, end quote. And I think following from some of the things Nietzsche said about praise, this sort of solidifies, he's kind of got a negative view about giving praise. Um, that, I don't know, I don't think it bears much more explanation. 171, quote, In a man devoted to knowledge, pity seems almost ridiculous, like delicate hands in a cyclops, end quote. And it is a rather ridiculous image he gives us there. He's stimulating the senses, right, to an abstract idea that pity seems ridiculous. And this is, again, to cross-reference an earlier aph aphorism, if one has looked deeply into life and nature, we see the ways in which pity is just contrary to the ruthless um, actuality of mother nature. Number 174, quote, 
You utilitarians, you too love everything useful only as a vehicle for your inclinations. You too really find the noise of its wheels insufferable. End quote. So even utility, the love of what is useful, well, useful for what? It's just the vehicle for your inclinations. And so even though they tend to agree that what's useful is accruing pleasure and avoiding pain, or the greatest good for the greatest many, whatever good might mean, right? That good will be a vehicle for everyone's own inclinations. What one finds pleasurable will be a vehicle for their own inclinations. What they find painful is a vehicle for their own inclinations. And, uh, you know, I think the implication here is Nietzsche, you know, you're trying to make everything mechanical, but uh, do you really find the noise of the wheels insufferable, right? Uh, there's some there's some aspect of trying to get away from arbitrary valuations in utilitarianism, and and yet it, it becomes merely a vehicle for that. One seventy five quote in the end one loves one's desire and not what is desired. End quote. I think this comes out of the symposium, which we might remember was Nietzsche's favorite text at Forta, that there is an aspect of love that is always reflects back into ourselves that uh, love is always self-love that we want what we want and that's an expression of the love of ourselves what we love is the desire itself almost in like you might say in an abstract in a form the abstract form of the desire right um but the individual objects of the desire are not really truly what is loved um 176, quote, the vanity of others offends our taste only when it offends our vanity, end quote. So the vanity of others is just fine. We all think of vanity. That's like kind of a, if not a sin, a distasteful thing, right? But it doesn't really upset us except when it clashes with our own. 177, this is very important to understanding the entire book, quote, perhaps nobody yet has been truthful enough about what truthfulness is. End quote. I, not much more to say than that. It's just it's a good summation of Beyond Good and Evil. Uh, 179, quote, The consequences of our actions take hold of us, quite indifferent to our claim that meanwhile we have improved. End quote. So the, the person is not a self in itself, right? We are in some way always shifting, always a becoming being. And we can always look back and with some truthfulness and say that person that made that mistake in the past, that wasn't really me. Maybe by analogy to Buddhism, this, this aphorism will become rather clear, right? That in Buddhism, you're sort of like a locus of karma and you don't have a self in the sense of like having some sort of objective, substantive, unitary entity called the self that is the same across time. In fact, it is different across time because everything's impermanent. Yourself is constantly changing such that you can't even say that you were the same you that walked in the room as, you know, what is it, T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets, the man who got on the train to read the newspaper is not the same who got off at the next platform. And yet you still have to bear the karmic consequences for your actions, right? Um, try going before a judge and saying, Your Honor, you know, your DNA completely changes over every seven years. All the cells in my body are completely regenerated. That crime was committed eight years ago. Um, and see how well that goes over, right? The consequences of your actions still follow you. Um, and because 
Nietzsche doesn't hold to this free will idea. In a way, it's still that pre-moral, prehistoric age of morality uh, claiming its due on us still today, still inherit the legacy of that, the consequences of that moral outlook, right? 180, quote, there is an innocence in lying, which is the sign of good faith in a cause, end quote. So the holy lie, right? The ends justify the means. There's a certain innocence about that point of view. There's a naivete to that point of view, right? Um, which is a way of putting it, which is endearing. Um, <laughs> and that, you know, it's like they, oh, they just love the cause so much. They're willing to lie any amount for it. And uh, it's, I, I love the way Nietzsche can do something like that. Take something that should by all accounts be a criticism and make it sound nice <laughs> and vice versa. 181, quote, it is inhuman to bless where one is cursed, end quote. And I think that is a statement on the freakishness of Jesus and how maybe the ways in which we've been botched by Christianity, the, the message of resist not evil and what it, how it's taken hold. 183, quote, not that you lied to me, but that I no longer believe you has shaken me, end quote. And this is a big deal. I mean, it's the basis of trust and not being able to trust somebody anymore. That's what really shakes you to your core when you realize I can't trust you. It may not even be that the lie itself, uh, you know, was so bad. It's when you realize like, oh, this person's a liar and that it causes a whole reevaluation of your image of them because the appearance they're giving off is not a genuine appearance, right? 184, quote, the high spirits of kindness may look like malice, end quote. And there is something about, I mean, it goes back to being nice, but not kind or kind, but not nice. That the true desire to be kind to someone, to actually do what would actually be best for them, can in that moment appear as malice, right? Um, if somebody asks you, like, don't let me smoke another cigarette. And then they come asking for the pack of cigarettes you took from them and you withhold it, right? Is that a malicious act? No, of course not, right? But maybe that's a bad example because it doesn't even look like malice. Um, you know, we might say something more like uh, forcing someone through a detox program in rehab. That might be a really ugly process. It could involve a lot of, you know, feeling like absolute death and vomiting and being unable to sleep. But on the other side of that, right, you'll come to a better place. And this is the last one, 185, quote, I don't like him. Why? I am not equal to him. Has any human being ever answered that way? End quote. And so what we get on a final, that's the final aphorism of this section it is a little underwhelming, I think a little anticlimactic, but it does say something rather subtle, which is a nice note to end on. The ways in which so much of what we do and what our conscious life is, is a falsification. Because the implication, the undertone of that passage is, in many cases, that is why we don't like people. Because we have the perception that... Um, you know, we've encountered something superior to us and that embitters us to that person. The jealousy, the resentment over someone who is simply 
better than you in some way. And we're not talking about people, somebody who's unfairly succeeded, but sometimes, you know, you just, you know, like I'll use my own example in music. I've seen people, I've seen local bands blow up beyond being regional bands, become national acts and other locals who at the scene is so outwardly supportive and so pretends to be so supportive of one another. And they'll become so spiteful and hateful toward those people behind their backs. Suddenly they're just posers, right? Oh, they sold out all the things, familiar things that people really say this stuff and they really do get, they don't publicly do it, but you can hear them say it privately. And it is almost entirely just a function of the fact that they've succeeded. And they will even tell themselves that it's, they succeeded unfairly, but oftentimes they didn't like they actually did write just, they just write better music than you write. They're your artistic superior. That doesn't mean they will always be. It doesn't mean you uh, can't improve yourself or transcend them, make them your ideal and transcend them. But that resentment is real. And what Nietzsche is pointing out there, has any human being ever just honestly been like, that's why I don't like this person because he makes me feel less than, than he is in his presence. He's, I, I'm not equal to him. That's why I despise him. And his implication is, no, we don't say things like that. That since time immemorial, we falsify. We take the inner content, the actual, if what we are is not a stable, solid, unitary thing, but this bundle of drives or affects or passions, right? That's the inner content. We falsify those affects or passions or drives or motivations. We falsify who and what we are in, in many ways. And we uh, accordingly live in this world of images of uh, ourselves and other people. And the final note is that's not bad. Like there, there's something about that that is irrevocably the human condition. It's just if we're going to be serious about what truthfulness is, we have to be serious about the ways in which our psychology basically leads us to falsify who we are, to use, take the mask of our opposite and use that to hide our shame to the world and how that's what everyone's doing and how it's <laughs> the uh, this whole world of appearances within the, re the relevant realm of the social world and the psychological world um, is truly an astonishing thing, a bewildering thing. Um, but hopefully Nietzsche, through his insights and the style of the French aphorist, has helped us uh, see beyond, uh, look, look underneath the skin a little bit. All right, and with that, we're done with part four. Next week will be part five, the natural history of morals. Uh, very excited to get into that and uh, look forward to talking to you all again. Thank you for joining me. Signing off. If you enjoyed the Nietzsche podcast or found it helpful, you can visit us and support the show at patreon.com slash untimelyreflections. The link is in the description. Or just share the show with any of your friends that you think might enjoy it or on social media. Thank you for your support.